Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 uh, Apple time. Time to begin our grand rounds. Uh, great to see everyone. I hope you're staying warm. Harry, you look a little bit cold there. And uh, were you warm today? That's good. Okay, he's having his warm coffee. Uh, Susan, thank you to, for coming. It's great to see you on a very cold day today. So it's, it's always uh, a joy. And uh, Nina Livingston, who's here and uh, from the SCAN program, um, and, and Dr. Young, who brought me some delicious uh, sweet uh, goods the other day. So uh, again, great to see everyone. Doug, of course, is always in the same place. And Dr. Cohen came early today, which is always a delight. Thank you. Uh, today we have a fantastic uh, uh, speaker and grand rounds, uh, and he will be introduced by, by, by the lead of the GSD program, Dr. David Weinstein. And just want to say a couple of words, which uh, uh, you know I think it's a little bit of history now because they just uh, had their third anniversary of uh, arrival into Connecticut Children's Medical Center. So if I could ask the entire GSD program to stand up for a second so we can recognize you. A 
and there are many more that are that are not here. They're probably logged in on the internet. This is the entire NIH uh, basic science team at the university, uh, and uh, it is really an army. You know, when David came here in uh, April, uh, almost four years ago, we we just didn't know the transformation that was going to take place both at UConn Department of Pediatrics and here at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. I think he just, he was invited by Rebecca to give a, a translational seminar series. And I don't think he, when he came, he knew he was gonna really move uh, completely to Connecticut and enjoy the, the, the warm weather in January, as opposed to you know the nice 75 degree weather in Gainesville. Um, but uh, ever since that day, uh, I, the, the best way I can describe it is that it has been uh, it, it's it's been a, an, an amazing an amazing transformational history which has changed certainly has changed the Department of Pediatrics and and it has changed Connecticut Children's in many ways. It has put us in a, on the map and in ways that we would never have thought possible. Uh, David and Patrick will tell you how many countries we probably have reached out to, and and how many people have come through our doors as a result of this transformational work. Um, most importantly, it's uh, it, it's it's really a pleasure to work with a team that is so devoted for the to the care of kids, uh, and uh, every single hour of the day and night. Uh, and I know, uh, and even at three in the morning, because David sends me text messages and emails at three in the morning, so I know he's up thinking about the kids. Um, and, and that's what it's all about, is to make making sure that they do well. Uh, I, get, I get emails from Argentina, I get emails from Colombia, I get emails from, from Europe, uh, and it's always a picture of, of the number of kids that have been taken care of. And some kids that haven't received care and, this, and the care has been changed as a result of this program. So, so David, uh, I, I'm enormously grateful to you and your team for everything that you have done for so many kids, which is really what this is all about. And I think today, we will hear from, from Patrick Ryan, who is the, um, he, people confuse him as an intern. He's not an intern, he's an internist, um, who is also a pediatrician. Although, you know, I, I think if you look at him, you probably will not think he's an intern, but that's, that's, a, whole, that's a whole different story. But he's, all, and he brings his Southern drawl, which I really love and enjoy. Uh, and as you know, Jim Sperling, our CEO, is also from the South. So we're kind of getting into this Southern drawl. Uh, mine is from, from Columbia, which is a little different draw, so we won't talk about that. So David, if you can come up and introduce Dr. Ryan. Thank you, Juan, for the, uh, for the kind words. And I, I will also emphasize that it's a team effort. And we are very fortunate to have such a great team. This is just part of the team. And um, Dr. Ryan's the latest member. So in 1994, I started to do glycogen storage disease. And in 26 years ago, the prognosis wasn't very good. Most, as you heard last year when I was speaking, most people ended up with liver transplants and there really were very few adults because people didn't survive. Well, times have changed. We now have over 700 people coming here to Connecticut Children's, which as people know is the largest program in the world. A third of our patients are over 25 now. And we even have our first patient turning 70 this year. And I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. So it was one of my goals was to bring in someone who was more comfortable with adult patients. And I was thrilled that Dr. Ryan was willing to relocate from West Virginia to do this. So a little background. 1994, there was also the Big East football conference and basketball conference. And he's from West Virginia. I was a Miami Hurricane fan and we were rivals. And little did we know that we were gonna end up here at UConn, which was a rival to both of our teams, together all on the same team. So Dr. Ryan was born in West Virginia, 
He um, went to medical school in West Virginia. He lived in West Virginia. He's a real mountaineer. He, after um, graduating from medical school, he was double boarded. He did a med-peds residency and double boarded in pediatrics and internal medicine. And as you can imagine, in West Virginia, where there's just not as many specialists, he did everything down there. So he was in charge of the third and fourth year medical student education. He was the chairman of the ethics committee. Imagine practicing medicine with ethics, that's good. Um, he was the chief of staff at Greenbrier Valley Medical Center. He was the head of internal medicine at the Robert Byrd Clinic. He served as a hospitalist, and he also was in charge of the hospice programs down there. So he did all the different roles. In 2017, he decided to give it up and pursue a different pathway because he was devoting time to his family. And he took a job at the Greenbrier Resort as the medical director there and the executive physician. And if everybody knows, any, anybody knows of Greenbrier, it's a very fancy place, golf resort, and they do healthcare at the same time. Well, he had one other title, and that's dad. Um, he and his wife, for some reason, were worried potentially about being bored, and they decided to become medical foster parents. And they have older children. And they decided that they would do this to help children and to um, stay busy. And the first child that they took care of as medical foster parents was a little girl with GSD. And I don't know if this was in the plans. We haven't really talked about it, but I don't know if it was in the plans, but they fell in love with her and decided to adopt her. And it takes a special family not only to take care of someone voluntarily with GSD, because you've heard about how involved it is, but to end up going into this world. And so Dr. Ryan comes to us with adult experience to help us with all of our adult programs as the associate medical director, but he also comes to us with the experience as a parent. And that makes, I think, a huge difference in terms of his, his care and compassion with the patients. We're very lucky to have him. So Patrick. Thank you for those kind words, and I'm going to be like Gil and adjust the microphone here. Okay. So, just for the record, it is West Virginia, not Virginia. Okay. We're, we're doing this, we're calling it Best Virginia these days. Um, and so, and again, as Dr. Weinstein mentioned, my most important role is always dad. And so, what we're going to talk about is ketotic hypoglycemia, because the other thing being double boarded. My program director in MedPeds at WVU always said that being a generalist is the one true path. Because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life, I just knew that one of my interests in life was always adult survivors or chronic childhood conditions. And at the time, I was thinking ALL, okay? I was thinking cystic fibrosis. Never in a million years was I thinking glycogen storage disease, but here I am. And so as you dive into glycogen storage disease, and even as a resident, I remember ketotic hypoglycemia, what in the world do you do with that? And unfortunately, I don't think things have changed a whole lot in the years since I was a resident. So, so these are my disclosures. Basically, there's nothing to disclose. We have um, some industry-sponsored um, studies. Um, so our objectives, we're gonna talk about ketotic hypoglycemia in the pediatric population. And we'll talk about an approach to evaluating 
kids with ketotic hypoglycemia and to always remember GSD. There's an old expression, if you build it, they will come. And so now we get calls from the ER all the time about astute residents who are thinking, hmm, this reminds me of something that I've seen before. And that's what we want to hear. Dr. Weinstein and I never mind getting called about, hmm, I'm thinking glycogen storage disease in this patient and walking, walking through things with, with people. So we'll start out with a case. So this two, almost three-year-old presents to the emergency department from his primary care provider's office with moderate dehydration due to two-day history of vomiting diarrhea. Sounds pretty bread and butter general pediatrics at this point. On IV placement though, the plasma glucose was noted to be 38. Hmm, what do you think of 38? Well, the attending physician says, well, that's just ketotic hypoglycemia. And the family's told that there's no further evaluation needed because that's just what kids do. So this brings up some interesting questions. First of all, is hypoglycemia normal in the setting of fasting in kids? What is a normal glucose? And since lipolysis should occur, you know, what's a ketone? Ketones are normal, right? So if you are fasting, you should have ketones. Is there such thing as too much ketones, too little ketones? So let's take a step back and let's see what, how prevalent hypoglycemia is in the emergency department. In 1998, there was a study that found that 6.54 episodes per 100,000 visits in kids less than five years of age. And so, so the exact wording from this study says well, it's rare. It's relatively benign, so an extensive and overzealous workup for an endocrinopathy or inborn error metabolism is not necessary. Now, in this day and age, I hate to talk medical legal stuff, but you miss one, you're in trouble. So, but things have changed a lot since 1998. So let's take it even a step further back. Well, why is glucose even important? Well, we all remember from our first year of medical school that glucose is the predominant fuel for the brain. And the brain doesn't store glucose, so therefore it's always dependent on a continuous delivery and a continuous supply in order to keep going. So because of this, glucose is tightly regulated, and I could throw up a whole lot of biochemistry and physiology slides here, but we all know that basically we all kind of consider normal 70 to 120. That's kind of the number that's in our heads most of the time, unless you're a neonatologist and that number tends to go down. Well, then what about fasting? What happens as a process of fasting? So again, going back to, to biochemistry is glycogen is our first source. So we store glucose in the form of glycogen in the liver. So if we fast and it's released, then as we go through fasting, we get a couple hours in, then all of a sudden we begin to burn our free fatty acids. And one of the exhaust products of our free fatty acids are ketones. At this phase, remember our third fuel is proteins, which comes from our muscles. And so when we get all three, like in, in figure B here, we have our glycogen, we have our free fatty acids with ketones as the exhaust product, and we have protein catabolism into glucose. But then as the fasting progresses even further, we use up all of our glycogen stores. This is what the Tour de France riders and the marathon runners and the endurance swimmers all strive to prevent. That's why the old saying was before the game, you know, big spaghetti and carb load, because you want to increase your glycogen stores. So again, what's this have to do with kids? Well, this is kind of the, the first 
study in 73, where they took a 24-hour fasting study in children. And so what they found was the mean whole blood glucose there at 24 hours is 52. But, you know, in kids, we're all about standard deviations. And so two standard deviations is 38. So does that mean that less than 38 is normal, is, is hypoglycemia, or is it a different number? So on the adult world, because again, being medpeds, adults can go up to 72 hours fasting and still keep their sugars above 60. That's because there's a lot more of adults running around than what there are kids. So when you look at even the definition of hypoglycemia, again, this is me coming as a generalist. In the adult world, there's this great big list from the guidelines, and I've got the quote there, you can read it, but it boils down to Whipple's triad, just one of those great mnemonics when you're, when you're a first or second year med student that basically says you have hypoglycemia, you have symptoms of hypoglycemia, and it gets better when you fix their glucose. That's pretty common sense. But basically, that's the adult guidelines. That's what is hypoglycemia in the adult world. On the PEED side, we're smarter than that, right? Well, on the PEED side, it says, well, no, it's still basically the same thing because we can't define it because the number changes. But the one thing I find interesting in both of the guidelines is what is a symptom of hypoglycemia? And most of the symptoms of hypoglycemia really are neuroglycopenia, meaning that you're having mental status changes, you're having a seizure. So in the adult world, where you're post-pubertal and you're finished growing, that might be a reasonable diagnosis. I kind of question in the PEED side, is glucose important for anything else besides keeping the brain going? For those people that have low for ketotic hypoglycemia, the classic description is they're growth restricted. Well, is glucose important for growth? Well, it's the main fuel, right? So it has to be important somewhere in there. However, we always define hypoglycemia more as neuroglycopenia. So as a generalist, if I'm coming into this, I'm thinking, well, what really is hypoglycemia? And in all fairness, I'll give that it's a difficult thing to, difficult thing to define because some people get symptoms in the high 60s. Some people don't get symptoms until the teens. So, but to me, at least for argument's sake, I think we at least need to define what is hypoglycemia. And generally, in our world, we kind of define hypoglycemia as 60 or less. So whenever you go back and take a step to how does hypoglycemia, how is it classified? So basically, I'm not going to go through all of this, but you either can't conserve your glucose, you can't produce your glucose, or you have a hormonal dyscrasia. And all the pediatric endocrinologists in the room love the improper signaling part there. That's the critical sample. That's what everybody jumps on, okay? But what really happens if you're a peds hospitalist or you're a community physician is impaired conservation. You've got a premature baby, you get sepsis, you get this ketotic hypoglycemia, whatever that is, because to me, that's a description, not a diagnosis. What we live in is the decrease, decreased production with the, the disorders of hepatic glucose release. But this is, becomes this, all this stuff that as a resident, I remember going, I'm going to remember it for boards, and I'm never going to remember it again. And here I am eating, drinking it every day. So, <laughs> 
There's also some syndromes that are associated with hypoglycemia just for completion. Um, being as someone who's just reserted both their medicine and PEDS boards, you need to know back with Wiedemann for all of the residents out there. Russell Silver syndrome is popping up more, was actually a question on my mock as the um, distractor. So you had to know what Russell Silver is. Then there's other ones out there that are more rare, but from a genetic standpoint, there are also all these reasons that can also cause low glucose. So then begins the question. So if you have hypoglycemia during periods of stress, which makes sense, you know, it's like if you're teaching a third year medical student, well, why do we put dextrose in all of our fluids in pediatrics? On the adult side, we didn't do that. Well, it's because under periods of stress, kids are always growing and they need more fuel. And so because of stress and the counter-regulatory hormone activation, there's a high disorder. If you're going to catch a hypoglycemia, it's probably going to be in that window of increased demand. So because of this, um, the study was undertaken by Boston Children's and Mount Sinai. And so it was really an eloquent study. They, there were, they looked at emergency department visits and they found incidentally low glucoses. So out of 52,000 ER visits, they found just under 9,000 that had hypoglycemia that they sent off glucose for. So 22 patients, well, they knew they had why. You know, they were diabetic, had too much insulin. They were some with a known glycogen storage disease, some reason. But then there were 40 patients with glucoses less than 50. And out of that was 50, 32 consented for the study. So out of those 40, six patients were diagnosed with a fatty acid oxidation defect, which is kind of important. Three patients had an endocrine cause of their hypoglycemia. But then that leaves everybody else. So what about all these other kids with ketotic hypoglycemia? So Dr. Dirks in 2013 actually went back and published and looked at all of the different studies where we could find ketotic hypoglycemia. And so they range all the way back from 64 to 2008 at the bottom of the page. And granted, there's not a lot. And again, people kind of define hypoglycemia in different ways. But the one thing that stands out is if you look at the gender predominance, 95 men or 95 boys, 48 girls, which is much, much more than 50%. Which then begs the question, if it's that common, then maybe glycogen storage disease are an underrecognized cause of the ketotic hypoglycemia. And so it's worthwhile to always think about and to keep pretty high on your differential diagnosis. So because of this, especially when you think of the GSDs and the ketotic types, you have the, the three big ones here that aren't associated with big livers. So type zero, which is glycogen synthase, or the phosphorylation defects in six and nine. So these are the kids that pretty much come up with glycogen going down to the activated form of glucose. But if you can't activate glucose, you kick off ketones as a byproduct. So because of this, in 2015, the group published um, a paper where they were looking at patients with two or more episodes of ketotic hypoglycemia, and we defined it less than 50. Now, they had to have a normal endocrine evaluation for adrenal insufficiency and growth hormone deficiency. Sorry, all you endocrinologists out there, that's not what we're looking for. Um, and negative screens for disorders of fatty acid oxidation. So 
Now, to avoid bias in recruitment, because you can say, well, if everybody's there, we'll just send them all here. We know that they'll get tested because the study's going on. The group elected to collect samples from outside of the institution, so doctors from around the world could send samples in to be tested. So the exclusion criteria were, well, if you have a diagnosis that goes along with it, if there's hepatomegaly, because the group felt that if you had hepatomegaly, there's a pretty good chance you probably have a glycogen storage disease. And so we think that that should be a big key indicator to start out with, or if you think they might have glycogen storage disease, because the one thing we didn't want to do is, well, hey, we're going to do genetic testing on this. If you think they have it, send it in. We'll do your genetic testing for free. So because of that, we took saliva samples and we tested for type 0, for type 6, and three types of the type 9. So again, this is for everyone that loves PCR. We did a forward and reverse directions, and they were compared with the known databases. And so we kind of dove in as far as we could based on the technology at the time. And the study lasted from 98 to 2013. And so ultimately 177 samples were collected from kids with ketotic hypoglycemia. The population was 105 males, 72 females. So again, with a male predominance. So out of those 177 subjects, 13 patients were found to have hepatomegaly. Interestingly enough, out of those 13 patients, Five had type 6, seven had type 9, and one had type 3 glycogen storage disease. So to me, that's a big take-home message. If you see hepatomegaly, you really need to start thinking in the setting of hyperglycemia. You need to start thinking about the glycogen storage diseases. So what's left is we have 164 subjects who meet our eligibility criteria, and we found genetic changes in roughly 20 or 29% of the subjects. Now, this is genetic changes. This isn't diagnosed. We found abnormalities in their DNA. And there were two subjects who were not included that were found to be what we call synergistic heterozygotes, which means that they have a defect in two different types of GSDs. And so because of that, a lot of times they will manifest phenotypically with symptoms. So out of those 20 cases of zero, we found four, four that actually had genetically proven and we went down and we actually found, and the big thing to see is in type 9 there, out of 19 cases, 14 of them had a genetic diagnosis of type 9 GSD. And if you break them down by gender, you'll notice that GSD 9 alpha is, is, is very much male predominant. Now, there is some possible selection bias because... First of all, it was a long study. It was 15 years, but when you're dealing with rare diseases, it kind of takes that long to get enough samples in order to have your power. And it was a global pool of patients, and so some people might have said, hey, you know, they're doing this study. We, we don't know what's going on. Let's send them down there. Let's get free genetic testing. And six and nine were, weren't part of the original protocol. Originally, it was designed to look for type zero, but during the 15 years, the technology advanced, and all of a sudden we have probes that can find nine a whole lot, nine and six a whole lot easier. And so ultimately they were added afterwards. So in summary, the ketotic forms of GSD do seem to be pretty prominent as an underrecognized cause of hypoglycemia. And the take-home message, that's why it's in red. My mom was a teacher, so when it's in red. Recurrent hypoglycemia in a boy should raise suspicion of GSD-alpha. 
As a matter of fact, that's one of the questions we always ask, um, especially if you are a fellow or even if you are a resident or a community physician, if you have a boy who is growth restricted and you have ADHD or other behavioral problems, you should always start thinking about type nine because that is probably the most common. If I had to do a vignette to write a board question for type nine, that would be it. That's the classic presentation for type nine. So what do you do once you find it? So as with everything else, history, history, history. I still remember my first day of medical school, the dean standing up in front of the class and saying 85% of patients will tell you exactly what's wrong with them as long as you take the time to listen. And so same thing's true here. When does your hypoglycemia occur? Because there's a difference between fasting and postprandial and things like that. How long do they fast? Because if they can go 12 hours without fasting, maybe your differential diagnosis should be a little bit different. If they can only go an hour between fasting, your differential diagnosis is different. Were there any difficulties in the newborn period? And this is always a question that is wrote with peril, I guess, because the NICU guidelines for hypoglycemia changed. So a lot of our patients who may have been born in the early 2000s were fell under one guideline. Our newer patients who were born in 2015 are under different guidelines and the AAP and the neonatology guidelines don't exactly agree. So, so but we always ask the question, is there documented hypoglycemia? When did the child first sleep through the night? Because as we go through life, that's our first fast is when we're able to sleep through the night because when we're babies, we're getting up every two to three hours and eating. And so a lot of our patients have this ravenous appetite that never, they're two and they're still getting up every three hours and eating. Well, if you think about it, they're fixing themselves. They recognize their hypoglycemia, they fix their hypoglycemia, but eventually that's not a sustainable model. Are there any food aversions or cravings? Because the body will tell you what it needs a lot of times. And so one of my favorite stories is from our oldest known patient with 1A who says, yeah, I just never did like sweets even, even as a kid. And of all of our 1A GSDs, I can count two that have a sweet tooth. My daughter, Lindsay, for her sixth birthday, she didn't want a birthday cake. She wanted to go to Buffalo Wild Wings. So what did we do? We had hot wings during the Stanley Cup's playoffs. The Bruins were playing at an intermission. Everybody stopped and watched a six-year-old throw down hot wings. Okay. <laughs> are they on any medications? Because, again, medications are always in your differential diagnosis. And especially if we start seeing stimulant medications, that really triggers, triggers us. And have they had surgery before, especially if they've had fundoplication, because again, that's going to change your absorption and your ability to digest. So this is my favorite table. I give this to any time a resident actually pokes into the GSD unit and says, hey, can I talk to you about this patient? Because to me, this is, this is another high yield, high yield table. So fasting versus when you're predominant fuel and disorders to think about. So when you're fasting zero to two hours, that's really just what you ate. If you had a Snickers bar, you're going to be digesting it for the next hour and a half to two hours. If you're not, you're probably not absorbing your glucose or you're in a hyperinsulin state. Because if you're a diabetic and you've taken too much insulin, doesn't matter how many Snickers bars you have, you're not going to be able to keep your sugar up. But you start getting that two to six hour window, which is what most people consider to be a normal fast, 
your predominant fuel at that standpoint is glycogen. And so if you start seeing people having hypoglycemia in this two to six hour window, start thinking about your glycogen storage disorders. Hyperinsulinism can still pop up in there and glucagon deficiency is also there. So that's why we need our friendly neighborhood pediatric endocrinologist. In the six to 12 hour window though, we start getting into disorders of gluconeogenesis. But GSD type zero, which is a glycogen synthase deficiency, also can wait that long. And GSD zero is different, and that's the one with postprandial hyperglycemia. That's always the buzzword on the boards, okay? Postprandial hyperglycemia. But if you fast longer, you start getting into 12 to 24 hours. By then, you've gone through all of your carbohydrates. You've, now you're getting to your fat metabolism, and that's when you start getting your fatty oxidation disorders. And so always start thinking about that. If it takes them that long, start thinking fatty oxidation and think, are there any hormonal changes or, or other counter-regulatory changes that far out? Because if someone tells me, yeah, they had, their fasting study goes 16 hours, I'm thinking that's kind of out of the window for a GSD. It's not impossible because zero can still pop up in there because, again, these are all rules of thumb. But, again, this is a great take-home take home slide to have. So for your evaluation, so when we get called to say, hey, I've got this kid, they've got ketones, because we talked about we can't define what hypoglycemia is. We also can't really define what a high ketone is either. And so there are some people that say, oh, well, ketones are always normal. I don't personally subscribe to that. That's like saying a, a temperature is always normal. Is there a difference between 99 and 104? Probably. So for evaluation, Anytime you have a kid with two or more episodes of ketotic hypoglycemia, you really need to sit down and think about it. And so we recommend monitoring of the fasting glucose and blood ketones, not urinary ketones. I know urine ketones are cheap. They're easy. You know, you can dip it. Parents don't have to poke a finger. But what we find is it's really less sensitive. And it's, it's the last ketone that's made and it comes out through the urine. So it's the last to get made, it's the last to get better, plus it doesn't give you a number. So the question is always, can we do genetic studies yet? Because everybody was like, GSD is a genetic diagnosis in this day and age. It used to be, it was liver biopsy and went through all this rigmarole, but now with genetic testing, it's really quite easy. So we recommend sending genetic studies for GSD only if you have morning ketones and a significant amount of morning ketones. And so what's a significant ketone is like saying, well, what's a low blood sugar? You know, if it's four, well, that's definitely high. If it's 0.2, yeah, that's probably in the normal range. So we kind of use persistently 0.4 or higher, or if you start seeing numbers definitely above 0.8 to one, maybe 1.2, depending on the situation, definitely start thinking about it. And so gene panels are available. It may be most effective to pick genes individually. I need to put a disclaimer on this because we were actually working up a patient for GSD type 9, and what we found is a GSD panel now is actually cheaper than targeted sequencing now with the newer generation sequencing techniques. And there actually is a lot of places have GSD panels. Um, always be careful, though, as a caveat here, there was a paper that came out um, in January 2020 that I actually compared three of the main genetic sequencing, commercial genetic sequencing laboratories in the United States. And what they found is, is that they don't overlap and any one of them can miss a third of the genes. And that's not, wasn't for GSD in all fairness, that was for epileptic genes. 
But still, if you get sequencing from all three, you only miss about 4%. Whereas if you only do one, you can miss up to 30% of genes. So just because you have negative sequencing doesn't mean that you don't have a genetic diagnosis. Now, the geneticists will always argue that genes don't lie. And my report to that is, I agree the genes don't lie, but we can't read all the genes yet. So always keep that in mind. So how do you treat it? This is a whole talk in itself, but basically for the ketotic types, it's a high protein complex carbohydrate diet. And cornstarch is, that, that's our medicine. You know, we, we, we probably, I know in our house, we always have at least six big containers of Argo cornstarch. And so for the ketotic types, it's roughly one to three times per day. And so our goal is to always keep your glucose as normal and your ketones under 0.2 as much as possible. Also, the, probably the most important part, sure, it's just like with everything else in pediatrics, it's not just give the medicine, it's to limit the diet. It's to, to take away the offending agent. So by limiting simple sugars, you essentially are trying to get the body not to store glycogen. And in the ketotic types, it either can't through glycogen synthase, or in six and nine, it can't break them, build and break them down appropriately. And so by limiting simple sugars, you're not building up glycogen. And so also protein is super important because remember, if you can't burn your carbohydrates, you're burning your fats. When you're burning your fats, your ketones are high. Otherwise, you wouldn't have ketotic hypoglycemia. But obviously, their ketones wouldn't be high if they were burning their fatty acids efficiently. So because of that, they start catabolizing their proteins back over into glucose. And so that's why supplemental protein is so important. So just to review, the prevalence of hypoglycemia is, it's still out there. It's not on every patient that walks in the door, but you need to have an approach anytime you see this situation, whether it's in the clinic or in the emergency department, or a lot of times even on the floors. And so remember, glycogen storage disease is probably underrecognized because again, we have difficulties defining ketosis. We have difficulties finding, defining hypoglycemia. The way I think of it is, it reminds me of the Supreme Court ruling back in the 70s that says, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. Are there any questions? No. Probably as a general pediatrician, the most common time we see ketotic hypoglycemia is somebody has some gastroenteritis, they're not giving any kind of any glucose supplement. I suspect some of those people we write off that just happen, maybe a precipitating factor to it. In those particular cases, is it just the frequency at which they may have hypoglycemia or any other clues to decide which one of those people you're going to work up? Because we see that, I would say, as a general pediatrician, at least once a year, you see somebody that is post-gastroenteritis, they come in, you yep. give them glucose, boom. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree. And, and, and in my world, when I, was a, when I was a generalist, I saw it maybe once or twice a year, too. Because remember, I'm from West Virginia, so we have a lot more genetic stuff than the rest of the population does. <laughs> um, not kidding. Smith's Manual of Human Malformation was, was written by Dr. Smith, who's Professor Emeritus at University of Kentucky. His clinic was in Williamson, Kentucky, which is right across the river, the Tug River from Williamson, West Virginia. So, um, but to answer your question, it's, 
anytime you're under increased stress, you kind of expect it. And to me, it's relative. But if I have a kid that's coming in every time he gets a gastro, he bottoms out his sugars. Then I'm thinking, maybe I want to see what this kid's really doing when he's well. And so that's the kind of kid, especially if it's two or more, you know, one time things happen, but if it's two or more times, then let's, let's see what he's like when he's well. And the most recent kid that we've been working up, that's exactly what happened. He was in the hospital. He was low. We sent him home with a ketone monitor and a glucometer. We checked fasting numbers. He has fasting ketones up to like 1.5 and that's in a well state. And so I think because of that, it's almost like when the pediatric endocrinologist try to get their critical sample, when they're sick, we want to try to get their samples when they're well, just to see what they're at in a normal fasting state. The follow-up on that, could you just in the, you know, if that's happened, just get a fasting blood sugar some morning and see if they, if that's normal, then you don't worry about it? Well, I, the, the argument then is, is that if they're sick enough to be in the hospital and they've had a gastro, they've probably been on fluids. And so you stabilize them with the D10. So you've kind of built up their liver glycogen. So everything's kind of in a steady state. What you'll find is you've probably seen this pattern before too. You send them home and then they get a little sicker, a little sicker, a little sicker before they kind of bounce back or they continue to get sick. We, it's almost like you've hit a reset button on the liver. You filled up their liver full of glycogen. So really it takes several weeks after an acute illness to really kind of get back to a steady state where I think you can trust the fasting number. Good morning. Thank you. That was uh, very, very interesting. Can you just speak to the connection with ADHD, growth, boys? Uh, mm -hmm. what, what am I really looking for? Who's going to, why ADHD? Why ADHD? Okay, so why ADHD as, as a kind of a trigger? So the, the most common, I guess, to me in my experience is that one of the most common signs of hypoglycemia is irritability and lack of focus. And so even with relative hypoglycemia, we know that's neuroglycopenia, so that can definitely cause lack of focus. But also when your ketones are elevated, that causes the brain fall because that's not the main fuel the brain wants to, be, to have. And so because of that, kids don't pay attention. They're easily distracted. And it's more the inattentive type in all fairness. And I, and I even have adults tell me, it's like I can tell my ketones are high because I, I just stare at my computer screen for too long and, or I don't get a project done as efficiently. And that's one of their triggers that they see that they need to do that. And so in younger kids, we see this manifest as attention deficit hyperactivity between the irritability and with the lack of focus. And so that's why it's the ADHD with the growth restriction, because again, irritability and lack of focus, that can be a normal nine-year-old sometimes. But when you start seeing that with a formal diagnosis, you start seeing growth restriction, because of a lack of fuel in order to grow is kind of the basic way that I think of that, then you really need to start thinking, is there some under, underlying etiology? Because we actually believe that type 9 is probably the most common glycogen storage disease. It's just not diagnosed because a lot of forms are very, very mild and really don't pop up unless kids are sick or sometimes even in adulthood when they're sick. It will. So, so the question was, if we medicate them with stimulants, will it precipitate more symptoms? Yes, because essentially you're now pushing the accelerator pedal on metabolism. And so most of your metabolism goes to keep your brain and your nervous system working. So when you're stimulating the brain, 
that's going to cause an increase in metabolism, which will then cause more relative hypoglycemia and increased ketosis. So sometimes it does make symptoms work. It's almost like, I still remember this from residency because I'm a firm believer that I got burnt once theory. So I had this kid that, again, because MedPeds is a four-year residency, so I'd taken care of this kid for three years. He had, he had a seizure disorder, but he started having signs of ADHD, and so he got evaluated, and sure enough, he, he triggered on all the Connor scales and his form of evaluation. So we started him on methylphenidate. And then all of a sudden he became psychotic. And what we really did was unmask his underlying childhood bipolar. And so to me, that's anytime I start seeing, I I'm guess I'm one of those people, I don't take ADHD with a grain of salt either, because I think there's a huge differential diagnosis in irritability and inattention. And I think I would just throw glycogen storage disease into one of those categories as well. I have a question, Patrick. So great, great presentation, very instructive. Uh, what, what is the likelihood that, that uh, a kid with a syncopal episode could be, you know, I mean, that this could be mm -hmm. the presentation of a, of, of, of a GSD because they, you know, became hypoglycemic mm -hmm. or syncopal. We don't always mm -hmm. think about that as a possibility. That's something you could see. You know, I wouldn't, it's always on the list, you know, for a cause of, of neurogenic syncope. I know that's old terminology, but for neurogenic syncope or a seizure, you know, generally we don't see true syncope. You see True syncopism. That's not something I think of really much. Yeah, because because again, these these kids are ketotic, and so that way it takes longer for their. I see. And then the, the other question you mentioned that the diagnosis is based on, on the first morning ketone measure. Mm -hmm. So what is I mean, how easy is it for you to get a, you know, will insurance pay for that? Do you provide it? I mean, it's you know, getting that first yeah. morning. Yeah. blood sample in a kid at home is going to you be know, a little bit complicated. Sometimes, sometimes the ketone meters are a little bit of a struggle. It's kind of a mixed bag. Um, some, the last patient, they just, it's, they just filled it. You know, it wasn't any questions. A lot of our patients, you know, it's like, just like with everything, the meters, like I just brought freestyle you know, Walmart in, in, over the week, like $17. You have no stock in Walmart. But the strips, <laughs> not endorsing Walmart, but the strips though, um, the strips are about $170, okay? And that's those Connecticut prices across the board. And so, you know, that's that's what we see in the ketone meters too. The ketone meter itself is not expensive. The strips are a little bit more. They will limit the number you can do. And so sometimes we can either provide them or a lot of our families will buy them off of Amazon. Because again, sorry, not endorsing Amazon either, but other <laughs> ways to, to get it. Because again, and a lot of places don't, stock it on the shelf so they either have to order it in and so families look for other ways to get it any other questions uh david any final comments from you yeah, I, i'm just convinced that this is very very common and just if you don't mind since we're a little early let me just give one story from connecticut um this is this was a medical mystery in the washington post um several years ago it was a boy from connecticut who um, had two episodes of ketotic hypoglycemia. He was told just to eat snacks. Everybody forgot about it. When he got to third grade, he was diagnosed with ADHD. And again, what we think is happening, as Dr. Ryan was saying, is that the, the blood sugars would fall at the end of the morning because he wasn't eating, and he would have problems paying attention. <laughs> so then he got put on the ADHD meds, and as, as Dr. Ryan alluded, it got worse. He also stopped growing as well. 
the growth problems were blamed on the stimulants. I think anybody who's dealt with ADHD has known that the growth can be an issue. It was probably because the ketosis was getting worse. He um, ended up, after being put on the stimulants, also having stomach aches, and he would wake up with stomach aches and vomiting. And so what did the doctors conclude? They concluded that he had psychogenic symptoms, that this was all self-induced because he was struggling in school and he didn't want to go to school. And so they, they said that he had school avoidance syndrome, whatever that is. They then put him on psych meds that did not make his, that did not solve his problems. And he ended up missing 180 days of school because every morning he was waking up with stomach aches and vomiting. By, he ended up being enrolled in the Institute of Living school because he was missing so much. When he got enrolled, the doctor who did the intake had heard, had heard this talk about the ketotic hypoglycemia, sent his blood, and it came back GST9. That boy was in remedial classes, he was struggling, and he had a psych diagnosis. He came down, he, at that point I was in Florida, we tested his blood sugar, it was going down to the 30s and 40s every night around 2 a.m., but because he could counter-regulate, it came back up, and he would be, wake up with normal sugars, but with DKA-level ketones. He got put on cornstarch, got put on protein, got taken off his mental health meds, and he graduated recently as valedictorian of his class. So it's easy to miss. And I think a good index of suspicion is important. And also we are lousy at our physical exams. So in that study that Dr. Ryan was mentioning, it said that most of his patients had did not have big livers, but that's because doctors just don't know how to do a physical exam. When they actually got diagnosed, we saw them, they actually did have big livers, but nowhere, when we reviewed their charts, no doctor had ever commented on the big liver. And I will also point out that ultrasound is not a very good way of diagnosing. The liver has to be four centimeters larger than normal before an ultrasound can pick it up because of the standards that are used. So I just encourage everybody to think about it and really your best tool is a good history because it's all there. Um, and uh, I think everything that Dr. Ryan said is, is, is pertinent. Um, I can guarantee you probably everybody in this room has seen it and it's been missed. Is as I, I think I'm pretty good at feeling the abdomen, but I honestly sometimes don't know how big a liver is supposed to be. I mean, do you have a, a, a norm that you would put in there as far as is it one centimeter below the cross of two? Or what would you put down there? Because I, I, I always tell residents when you're feeling the abdomen, start low and work high. Because if you start high, you won't get the edge, and you've got to start low and work your way up, and then you have a much better chance of picking one up. But I, again, so many kids will have a liver edge. <laughs> right. And in all fairness, you know, I'll admit that I wasn't a very good liver measurer until I started doing it all the time either. Uh, <laughs> that's a Western word, measurer. Um, so, <laughs> but, but so roughly two, two centimeters below the costal angle is still considered abnormal. Now, again, you kind of have to take it with the growth phase, because especially when they start getting larger thoraxes and their torsos are growing, but two is always abnormal. Um, and so it reminds me what my, what, when I was in my physical diagnosis class, there was this guy from really cold fields, West Virginia, who makes my draw look like I'm a northerner, who said, 
I've been a rheumatologist for 35 years and I ain't ever felt no spleen. So if you feel it, it ain't right. And so that's kind of been the take home message from that. If you feel a spleen, it's never normal. And so I would also say that, you know, with a liver, if it's that big, that's probably not normal either. If you can palpate a liver easily, that's not normal in a kid. So, you know, there's always those rules of thumb, but really to percuss it out, you know, to do the scratch test, I should do four measurements to make sure because, I mean, I remember this kid that we were working up was seeing, you know, a very well-renowned endocrinologist at an institution down in the city and like wrote the book on this and I'm going, but I'm getting hepatomegaly. And they're like, she's like, I've never felt hepatomegaly in this kid. I'm like, his liver's big. I'm just telling you, I trust me. I didn't think it was going to be big. I measured it three different times. It was big every time. And sure enough, this is a kid that we think is going to have GST type 9. So again, physical exam is always important, you know, but to me, two centimeters is still, it's, that's always abnormal. And most of our GSTs are almost always over two centimeters, so they're not treated. Any last questions? Okay, again, thank you very much for an excellent evidence. <laughs>